0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Future Church series.
1: Please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 as we continue our teaching series, Future Church. We left off last week with a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Today, the plan is to continue kind of on a very similar theme with a community of peacemakers in a culture of political polarization. Who did you lose last year? I don't mean to death or to disease. I mean, who did you lose to politics? Who did you lose? A friend, a college roommate, a family member, an aunt, an uncle, a parent, a sibling, a neighbor, a coworker that you are no longer in relationship with or you're crosswise with now and there is a palpable cut it with a knife tension whenever you are together. I'm still grieving people that we lost as a church over the last year, 100% due to politics. Because we as a community were too far to the right or too far to the left or not far enough to the right or not far enough to the left or too loud or too quiet on this or that or the other. We lost a lot of people from our community. I don't have a number, but I think a fair bit. And that is very sad. Sociologists tell us that this phenomenon is not unique to Bridgetown that our nation is more divided than it's been since the Civil War. They now have that as a statistical fact. Our nation was built on the idea of E Pluribus Unum, or out of many, one. But lately, as somebody said recently, there's a lot of Pluribus and very little Unum. (laughs) A recent survey found that 60% of voters think members of the other party constitute a threat to America more than 40% would call them evil, and listen to this, 20% would call them animals. One survey found that, quote, among Americans who identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe that violence could be justified to advance their party's political goals, a substantial increase over the last three years. One in three. Another academic study found that, quote, hostility to the opposition party and its candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates voters more than loyalty. The political polarization that we are living through is due in part to what sociologists call the big sort, the grouping of right around a third of Americans into cities like ours and suburbs, which are more progressive and for the most part, more wealthy, and the bottom two thirds of America feeling left behind in rural areas or small towns or post-industrial cities in decline. Those of us who Identify with that upper one third, live in what the sociologist Robert Bellah called lifestyle enclaves, and the quote narcissism of similarities. Not only do most of us not even know our neighbors in the urban transients era we're living through, most of us don't even know people who aren't like us, who don't vote like us, think like us, dress like us, live like us, spend money like us, act like us, etc. But this is also due, not just to the geographic reality, but to the digital algorithms that shape our view of the world. To prep for this teaching, I read Ben Sass' book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, which is all about the grouping of Americans into what he calls anti-tribes. And he's a politician. Whatever you think of his politics, he's an erudite kind of cultural commentator. And he makes a very compelling case that although all the talk right now is about political polarizations, Historians, and he was educated as a historian at Yale before he became a politician. His case is that when historians tell our story, 100 years from now, when we're all in the grave, unless if Silicon Valley comes up with a great new app, um, when we're all dead and historians tell the story of our era, they will actually not tell a story about politics or political polarization. They will tell a story about the shift from an industrial world to a digital world and a new economy, and all of the social decay and the catastrophic disruption left in its wake. He compares it to a previous era in American history, and this is actually a hopeful way to interpret our current moment the late 1800s and early 1900s and the shift from an agrarian economy to industrial one, where people moved in droves from small agrarian villages to cities for jobs. This sparked decades of social unrest unrest like it's a fascinating little thing on prohibition, which we look back on as like this bizarre aberration like why would you make alcohol like illegal? And then he talks about how hard it is to pass a constitutional amendment and that prohibition had 85% of Americans' support. And he just writes about how the level of social unrest and decay that created a mass wave of alcoholism was so bad that 85% of Americans said we need to make this illegal. Like, that's the level of emotional and social disruption that was a part of that shift from an agrarian to an industrial world. And then he argues that the disruption from the shift to an industrial to a digital world is even more extreme. Behind the political zealotry right now, where, as J.T. Thomas put it in that interview, if you got a chance to listen to that, it's on our podcast feed, and it was such a fascinating conversation. At one point, he had this one lighter, He said, everyone is on a path to radicalization. Right now, behind that, behind all the political fervor, are hundreds of millions of Americans who are lonely and scared. Name your culprit the digital economy, transience, the breakdown of the family, the epidemic of fatherlessness, the widening gap between the upper third and the other two thirds, between the haves and the have nots, the fragile identity of secular ideologies on both the right and the left. The net result is, and this is Robert Putnam's recent work, 40% of American adults have zero to one confidant. Almost half of our nation have almost no one to talk to about anything at all. We all know that each year Americans are getting less happy, antidepressants are now the second highest volume drug in the country, I'm not saying they're bad, I'm just saying that's a fascinating phenomenon. Yet the clinical psychologists Jacqueline Olds and Richard Swartz in their book, The Lonely American, argue that much of what is called and even diagnosed as depression, they argue is in fact loneliness. Americans consume almost 99% of the world's hydrocodone and 81% of its oxycodone. Andrew Sullivan, again, whatever you think of him, writes in New York Magazine about how these drugs are used to dull not just physical pain, but what he calls existential pain. He writes, quote, The Oxycontin we experience from love or friendship or orgasm is chemically replicated by the molecules derived from the poppy plant. It's a shortcut and an instant intensification of the happiness we might ordinarily experience in a good and fruitful communal life. He writes about one study where rats were put in two different cages and given um, a stimulant, which is like water plus morphine, apparently doctors call that rat heroin, and they put one rat alone with the rat heroin and another group of rats in in a group, like where there were multiple rats in one cage. The lonely rat drank five times as much of the morphine water. We are like the rats in that cage, and social media and politics are our morphine. We are lonely as a nation. We don't know our neighbors. We don't belong to communities. We don't even know who we are or have an identity that isn't fragile. We don't live near each other in multi-generational families and kin around a table, not on a screen. And Sass argues that loneliness and fear is behind all of the political rage. I read a fascinating thing a few days ago on the psychology of enemies, on the role that enemies play in the human brain and your kind of body's survival instincts. So humans are tribal, we know that. There's a healthy version of tribalism and a toxic version of tribalism. But part of tribalism is you have a tribe and then there's another tribe and you identify people as not your tribe but in the other tribe and as an enemy. And that actually serves a psychological purpose in your body's self-preservation. And psychologists write about a few different reasons. One is enemies give us someone to blame so that we don't have to face our own reality or take responsibility for our own life or our own mistakes in Christian language so we don't have to face our shame. And they give us, this is bizarre and counterintuitive, a sense of control and coherence in the face of evil and suffering. A sense of this is what's wrong with the problem. They are the problem. Fill in your they of blank. In fact, research has demonstrated, that they did a clinical study where they put people in groups and they had them think about an enemy. So they had them draw like an ISIS terrorist member to mind or a member of the opposite political party and then report their emotional sense of well-being after. If the people that would think about an enemy then would report feeling like the world was less dangerous and less disordered. Because now evil has a shape and has a place, and you feel like, okay, it's under control and I'm okay. And of course, for lonely people, we said this a few weeks ago, enemies give us a tribe to belong to. The more individualistic a society is, the more tribal. That's a fact now. Anti-community, or what he calls anti-tribes, is toxic, but it's better than no community. It's better to scream at people online and feel like you're a part of a digital mob than it is to just sit in your apartment scared and alone. All that to say this widespread loneliness and fear is being preyed upon, and you know this, by a vast industry apparatus of what some are calling politainment, a lethal mix of politics, journalism, and entertainment. Forty years ago, in Neil Postman's precient work, which you've not read, is like one of my top ten cultural books, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is all about the effect of TV and entertainment culture on American society, he warned that in years to come, the two areas of society most damaged by the rise of TV and entertainment culture would be politics, and the other area, he said, would be religion and the church. Here we are, politicians and journalists and tech companies are making billions of dollars, one click at a time, and harnessing tens of millions of votes off of our widespread loneliness and fear due to the cultural disruption that we are living through as a generation. It's not to say that politicians and journalists and tech companies are all bad. I'm very grateful for the good ones. I'm grateful for those who serve well. We need good people in power, not no people in power. But there are powerful people who have a vested interest in stoking the fire of our hate and our fear, who have a vested interest in you having an enemy, who are driving us farther apart, not just in our nation, but even in the church. But while the digital age has intensified what is, political polarization is nothing new. This tribalism is a human condition due to the fall. And into this world of tribe against tribe comes Jesus of Nazareth. Who literally died, who gave his life to turn enemies into family. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to each other, to create a new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class family of God, not based on bud, blood and soil or ideology, but based on allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And Paul's theology in the New New Testament, when you sit down to a table with people who don't look like you, think like you, act like you, other than you all follow Jesus together, that is a prophetic witness in Paul's theology to the principalities at powers, to the spiritual evil, that their reign of terror over human history is coming to an end. Their days are numbered. Jesus is now Lord. There is a new Lord. There is a new kingdom. There is a new family. There is a new humanity. And your reign will end. And this taco night with these six people is proof of that. Right? This is the Jesus that we follow and not just follow, that we worship. The Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Interesting in context, the beatitude of the blessing right before that is blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, and the one right after is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the nation of America. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To function as a peacemaker requires both a pure heart, no agenda, or and it requires an openness to be persecuted, to have people hate you. Because what happened to Jesus at the end of the story? Was everybody just singing kubaya around the table? No, they killed him. They falsely accused him. They said, you will destroy our nation. And we hate you. You are the enemy. We will literally end your life. That's what it took to bring enemies together. This is Jesus, whose brother James, in his chapter on the role of speech in human strife, said this, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, Then peace-loving. Are we that way? Are we peace-loving? Considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. Doesn't this just sound like Instagram? Impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. Jesus was a peacemaker. Please note, not a peacekeeper. What's the difference? A peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is not good, when injustice is the norm, not justice. A peacemaker's job is to make peace. The implication is there is no peace. It is to bring two enemies together at a table to create an open space of listening and love and repentance and reconciliation and to turn enemies into family. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Take a look with me at Mark chapter two. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many tax collectors and sinners, meaning who followed Jesus. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, it's very easy to misread this story with a kind of Sunday school sentimentality, as if the moral of the story is be nice to all people, right? But notice Jesus and eating, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, which, by the way, is first century code for sex workers, was offensive to the Pharisees who were the moral zealots of the day. They were the most moral people of the day. A little backstory two reasons that eating a meal with Levi, who by the way is another name for Matthew that we believe is the author of the Gospel in the New Testament, two reasons that it was offensive. A little backstory. One, Matthew was a tax farmer. In the first century, Israel was a political tinderbox, in particular for a few decades right around Jesus' life. In fact, not long after Jesus, the whole thing blew up and went to war and rebellion, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was torn down just a few years after Jesus. It was just light a spark. The Jews were living under oppression on multiple levels from the Roman Empire, but especially economic. Some historians argue that the tax rate was as high as 80 or 90%. And vast numbers of people were living hand to mouth on their own ancestral land. Not only was Matthew a social pariah because he was Jewish, but he made a living, and most likely a lucrative one, working for the oppressor through adjacency to that. And tax farmers, on top of that, were notoriously corrupt. The way they made a living was by adding a fee to Rome's tax rate, but they got to set the fee, and then they had an entire Roman garrison to enforce it. So Rome could demand that you pay 80% of your crop, agrarian world. Levi could come along and say, actually pay 90% of your crop, and he could pocket all of that, and you had no leverage to mitigate against it because he had an entire Roman garrison behind him. You can only imagine the hate that tax farmers like Levi engendered. At the bottom of the social ladder of first century Israel were tax farmers and sinners or sex workers. And who does Jesus eat with? Tax farmers and sex workers. In doing so, he is raising the horizon of possibility over their life and inviting them into a new future and a new family and a new reality. Again, we read that and we think it's cool. That's because we live in a free country and a city with a high comfort for both taxes and sexuality without boundaries. But imagine whoever your deplorables are, to quote a famous politician, the people in our city or our nation that you think are just scum and should be eradicated from the face of the earth. I'm honestly not even going to give you a few examples because I get so much hate for just saying that Jesus would eat with people like that. But whoever those people are, That's the 21st Portland century equivalent of the story that you are reading right now. This was not cute, this was not sentimental, this was not compelling for people outside of the circle. This was offensive. Secondly, meals meant a lot more in that society than they do in ours. In every culture, meals are what the anthropologist Mary Douglas called boundary markers, meaning meals bring people together but they also keep people apart. Think of the pre-civil rights restaurants with no blacks sign on the front door. Even in our progressive city, restaurants simply by cost and location sort us into the socioeconomic stratum. People pick a grocery store based on what class they come from or what demographic they ascribe to. As a general rule, we eat with people we're friends or we're family with, not with strangers. Like the communal table thing, can we just all agree that's horrible? Like I'm not into that as an as introvert. Maybe that's just my introversion and lack of discipleship to Jesus. But we don't eat with strangers and we sure as heck don't eat with our enemies. This is true of all societies, but it was especially true of first century Jewish societies. And no rabbi would be caught dead eating with somebody like Levi. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias writes In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace. Trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism, in particular, table fellowship, that's what they called it, means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners into the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Another theologian I read said, Jesus got himself killed for who he ate dinner with. And Jesus didn't even own a home. New Testament scholar Christine Pohl, in her excellent book on hospitality, points out that in the Gospels, wherever Jesus went, even when he was in someone else's home, he was always the host. He was always welcoming people To God's love and his table. But as unpopular as it was, it worked. Turn the page. Take a look at Mark chapter 3. Look down at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. So, out of a much larger group of disciples, he appointed 12 as what we now call apostles, as kind of the leaders of the burgeoning church. 16. These are the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Bonadjurus, which means sons of thunder, meaning they were a bit feisty, right? You can imagine them on Twitter today. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew. Again, another name most likely for Levi. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Not only did Matthew, a tax farmer, not only was he called to be one of Jesus and not just a disciple of Jesus, but one of Jesus inner circle, but notice he also called a man that we don't read a lot about the New Testament called Simon the Zealot. All we know about him is that before he became an apostle, he was a zealot. Now one more piece of backstory. The Zealots were a first century violent insurgency group of far right Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. They were also called the sicarii, which is an Aramaic word. It means dagger men because they would carry a sicarii or a dagger under their tunic. And they would infiltrate uh, a middle of a crowd or a marketplace or an event. And they would slip up behind a Roman soldier or often just a Roman supporter, someone like Levi, men, women, children. They would slit their throat and then disappear into the crowd. This is a domestic terrorist kind of thing. And both Matthew, the tax farmer, and Simon, the sell are at Jesus' table. You can imagine they would have words. This is not Bernie Sanders and Rush Limbaugh. May he rest in peace. This is not even Proud Boys and Antifa. This is maybe an Al-Qaeda terrorist member and a Navy SEAL, both who have lost people. Violence was assumed between these two parties. These are enemies, two of whom are the founding apostles of the Church of Jesus. What happened to their politics? We don't know. We don't really even know what Jesus thought much about the Roman Empire. We know he thought that there was another king that we belonged to in another kingdom. He was very clear about the kingdom of God, which is a socio-political statement. Most scholars argue that Jesus was deliberately quiet and provocatively and intentionally silent on the raging political issues of his day, and that his silence was a greater statement than anything he ever could have said. We don't know what happened to their politics or their political views. All we know is these two former enemies, one of whom at least was violent in the past, became brothers the family of God, following the nonviolent, loving, compassionate, suffering way of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does. He's a peacemaker. He turns enemies first into a guest at his table, even if it's at his rich friend's house. And then he turns guests into family. And this is still what Jesus does, but now through his body, through the church. Who is that? That's you. And that is me. Jesus' primary call on us is not to get our candidate elected or our enemy eradicated in the culture wars. I'm not saying there's not a place for politics. But his primary call is to open our home, to set our table, to follow him into peacemaking, to do all that we can, as much as depends on us, to turn enemies into family. Now, is there a practice from the way of Jesus to index us toward peacemaking in a culture of political polarization? Yes, it's what the New Testament writers call hospitality. If you've been around Bridgetown for any length of time, you know we have a very high value for hospitality. And I've done a lot of teaching on it in the past. You're welcome to revisit. Let me just recap a few salient thoughts The word hospitality in the New Testament is phalloxenian in Greek. It's a compound word. Philo means love and xenos means stranger or foreigner. Hospitality is the exact opposite of xenophobia. It is the love of a stranger, not the fear or the hate. The love of a stranger, the welcome of all as a guest. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality as the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Rosaria Butterfield as turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. I would define it as expressing the welcome of God the Father to all through tangible acts of love, namely through giving food, shelter, and relationship. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to continue what Jesus started. In fact, a stronger word there is we are actually commanded to continue what Jesus started. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, here's one example. Practice hospitality. Notice that is a command. The word practice there is diakonates. One lexicon defines it as, quote, to do something with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. That's how we are to approach hospitality. It can be translated, be eager to show hospitality, not begrudging. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Beautiful idea. How do we do that? Quote, offer hospitality to one another. Here's for all of us introverts and neat freaks without grumbling. Some of you don't need to hear that. Others of us do, right? Without grumbling. Hebrews 13, verse 22, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, as family. Love that sentiment. How? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitalities to angels without knowing it. Wow, wow. Over and over, we are commanded to practice hospitality, to follow Jesus' example, to open our home or our apartment or go to a tent in the city at our invitation and sit down and welcome people that are not like us. My favorite book on hospitality is by uh, Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Butterfield was a lesbian lit professor at Syracuse University under tenure, whose specialty was postmodern critical theory. She was writing a book basically about how Bible-believing Christians are the worst and the source of all patriarchy and all sorts of other things. And uh, in order to write this book, she had to actually do research, and she had to actually spend some time with these Bible-believing Christians that she had grown to hate. And so she wrote a very angry kind of op-ed this was many years ago against a movement called Promise Keepers, which was kind of a Christian men's thing back in the day. And a local pastor reached out and very gently said, I read your article. Thank you so much for your thoughts. We'd love to have you over for dinner. And so she had to do some research anyway, so she said yes. And very you can read her stuff. Very, she has also a memoir that's beautiful. Um, She just began to come over to their house on a regular basis and found their life and their family and their faith to be more compelling than anything she had ever come to experience. Over time, through that process, she became a follower of Jesus. She's now a brilliant writer, as well as a foster parent, homeschool mom, and wife to a Presbyterian pastor. It's a true story. And her basic case is that the LGBT community does a way better job at welcoming strangers than the church. And that we need to recapture this ancient practice as our heritage and not a fringe idea for extroverted people with a nice home who like to entertain, but as core to following Jesus. I don't care if you're single and you live in a college dorm room. We find a way to embody this. I don't care how introverted I am. Like, this is just way of Jesus stuff. This is core. She writes, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. The gospel comes with the hospitality. That said, our practice for the week is available at bridgetown.church slash future. Our entry-level practice is just to go on a walk with a neighbor. Like if that's where you're at right now, it's all great. The baseline practice we invite you to work toward is to set a regular rhythm of inviting people into your home and eating a meal with them, say once a month. And the reach practice, if you really, like I already do that, would be to consider a night of the week, every Wednesday night or whatever it is, we invite somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, or a neighbor, or somebody new to my work, or our place, or whatever, into our home, or out for dinner, or on a walk, or however you do it. In the meantime, hospitality, hospitality is both a practice and a posture, again, now in. Hospitality should not be limited to its literal sense of restra- receiving a stranger in our house, although it's important never to forget the neglect of that, a lot of you don't even have a house, you're like living in a basement somewhere, or whatever, right now but as a fundamental attitude toward our fellow human being, which can be expressed in a great variety of ways. What are creative ways that you and I could embody the practice or at least the posture of hospitality and start to rehabituate our body and our life toward love of the stranger? Whether that's going on a walk outside, it's been beautiful, or like a outdoor heater with blanket party, or whatever it is. What are ways that we could take steps forward? To end, this is radically ordinary. You're like, you're calling us to basically eat? Yes, something that you already do two or three times a day. And that's the beauty of it, it's just so easy to do. I've been reading a lot over the last year about Edith and Francis Schaeffer, two Christian intellectuals from the last century, started Labrie in Switzerland, French word meaning shelter, and their vision was to create a home and eventually became a little village for secular people who are asking the deeper questions to come and not just debate or even dialogue, but to experience family. It became this internationally known little community, small community, but known all around the world. People still talk about it. Francis gave this advice at one point, quote, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. There is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home doesn't matter if you have cool furniture or extra square footage or if it's like hand-me-down Ikea that was free in the apartment, sidewalk outside, and Top Ramen. It can still be a real home where there's love, where there's welcome, where there's peace so simple that it's easy to miss the power. Our nation is falling apart at some level, and while politics does play a crucial role in the overall scheme of things, I don't personally think that politics is the solution to our deepest problems. Nor do I think that the solution is some massive nationwide thing. I think it's small, not big. Ordinary more than it's revolutionary. It's rebuilding the social trust that we've lost as a generation one meal at a time. One glass of something at a time. One conversation at a time. One apology at a time. One hug or welcome at a time. One more quote. André Trocmé, the pastor of the famous church in Les Chambon, France, that if you know about it, during World War II, defied the Nazis and took in thousands of Jews from all over Europe. And it was a, it was a little, tiny little Protestant village. And so it was basically a church that did this work. In a sermon, he called his church to, quote, work and look hard for ways, for opportunities to make little moves against destructiveness. Isn't that great? There is so much being destroyed right now across the world. We can't fix this problem. We can't end social media, the garbage fire that it is, or this, that, or the other. But we can make little moves against destructiveness. Destructiveness. Hospitality is a little move. Going on a walk with your neighbor is a little move. Calling up somebody in your Bridgetown community to ask how something went is a little move. Opening our table and making tacos is a little move. if you don't know how to cook, there's this great thing called YouTube, have at it. It's great. If I can figure it out, anybody can figure it out. It's a little move, but it's a little move against destructiveness and for the healing of our soul and our society. And this is our dream for, you know, the future of the church. As you know, we're um, kind of collaborating on this teaching series with our friends down at Reality in San Francisco. And uh, Dave Lomas, who's the lead pastor there and a dear friend of mine, we're kind of writing our sermons together each week. Which means if there's anything really good, it's most likely him and I don't quote him. Um, so, But uh, we were talking this last week about... There's a lot of talk among, a lot of chatter among pastors right now about what's the future of like a live stream gathering. And there's a number of kind of uh, very influential thinkers and leaders in America who think that online church is the future. I'm sure you can have in person gatherings, but the future is online. And we just quietly think, no way. Like we're grateful for the internet, we're grateful for these cameras right now and the red light of the last year um, because it's a lot better than like Gerald and I trying to find your address in a creepy way and knock on your door every eight weeks and say are you still alive, are you still a Christian, can I bring you a communion, right? <laughs> so we're grateful. But for us, it is a concession, not a command. That's not to devalue. We have months more to go, or most of you, your primary experience of church will be online. Please continue to gather with us. Um, Online is not as good in person, but it's a lot better than nothing or just listening to a podcast on your run. Please center your heart around worship. You're being deformed by a thousand, I am too, a thousand other habits in our digital world. This is a moment where we participate with Jesus for our formation into people of love and joy and peace, and and we lay again our allegiance before Jesus is Lord. Please continue to gather with us. But this thing is a concession for us, not a conviction. And we think the future of the church is less cameras and less stages and more tables and tacos. It's less online. It's more in person. It's less digital. It's more embodied. It's more present. We will continue to have Sunday gatherings. We'll continue to put stuff up on the internet. But the future of our church is people in relationship together who know each other's names, who reach across lines of like attraction Like in the echo chambers of society to become the new humanity of Jesus. This is the future of our church. It's our dream for the future of the church. And all of us, through our little, ordinary, mundane, what you're doing right now, sitting at home, eating Cheerios, no judgment because we don't know who you are, right? (laughs) Listening to this right now, or those of you here with your mask on and trying to follow all the rules. This is our little act against destructiveness. This is our little human finite act to join Jesus in the healing of all things.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free. Thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Jessica from Hermantown, Minnesota, Ben from Portland, Oregon, Brooke from Nashville, Tennessee, Mark from Chino Hills, California, and AXA from Fayetteville, Georgia. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org.